Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Certainly grateful for the presence of each one. Glad that you are able to be here this morning, that you made it important to you to be here, and appreciate very much your contribution uh, to the assembly this morning. The, the songs that have been sung have been uplifting to me, the prayers, and uh, the opportunity to come and share with you from God's Word is appreciated. And it's my, my desire, my goal anytime that I have that opportunity that uh, that you'll be able to benefit from my study of God's Word, that you'll be able to take and find some practical application of God's Word in your life. I titled the study this morning, Who is the Lord? And you might, you might look at that, you might think about that in terms of what we've experienced so far this morning, and you might, it might seem like a silly question to say, well, why would we come and talk about who the Lord is? When we've gathered in a group such as we have, and that we have uh, we've sung the songs that we have, and we've approached our Lord in prayer, and so I think of a passage in the book of James, chapter 1, verse number 17, where the Bible says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begot he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You know, James is just talking about some very practical uh, Christian living type things as he begins his letter there. Some daily, this is how we ought to live our lives as Christians. In fact, when you kind of put James right, right up next to the, the Sermon on the Mount, you see James kind of elaborating on some of these very basic things that Jesus taught us to do, how we live every day. And he gives this reminder in doing that, that every gift that we have is from above, that comes down from the Father. And he, he talks about this concept about God, that there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning with him. We call that cons- consistency. We call that, uh, we call that stability. And everything that we do and everything that we observe around us, there's this constant sense of change. And he uses those, what we might call astronomical type terms of shadow of turning. We have this uh, revolution uh, and rotations that the planets are doing as they go around the sun. And so we have night and we have day and we have these seasons and we have this constant change that's going on around us. But James reminds us, not so with God. There's no variableness, there's no shadow of turning. That he's a constant, that he's a consistent God. That he's an unchanging God. And all of the things that we enjoy, all of these blessings come from his hand. When I was a boy, I used to think there was a lot of other places that I would rather be on a Sunday morning than, than in church building. I just thought there was a lot of, lot of rocks that need to be thrown in the lake, a lot of fishing that might need to be done, things like that. And just not realize the, the great blessing that it was. And that I had, that I had a mother that, that took me to church on Sunday morning that taught me to know the Lord and to, and to fear the Lord. We say sometimes that we take things for granted. And sometimes we take this question right here for granted. I think that's why James puts that in. He inserts it where he does. And he reminds us who the Lord is. And the great blessing uh, that it is to know the Lord. And so this morning when we think about that, I want us to remember this constant, this unchanging God uh, that we're presented in the Scripture. You know, if somebody asks a question, who is the Lord... We wonder if there's a legitimate sense in which that question can, can be asked. We look back to the uh, book of Exodus, way back in early biblical history, and we find this question, this precise question being asked. And it's recorded in Exodus 5, verses 1 and 2. It's, the Bible says, Afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. 
And so most of the time when I read this passage, I looked at that question simply probably as a statement of defiance and arrogance that here's this powerful king and he says, I'm not, I'm not listening to the Lord. I'm not going to obey the Lord. But he actually asks that question, doesn't he? He says, who is the Lord? And then he goes a step further and he says, I don't know the Lord and I won't obey his voice. And it's evident from the conclusion, it's evident from his actions that follow that it's, it's a true statement. He doesn't know the Lord. He doesn't understand who Jehovah is, who he was. And we think about his education and his upbringing. He probably got taught a lot of things that are very different than what we got taught growing up. He got, probably got introduced to a lot of so-called gods and different idols and things that he worshipped on a regular basis. My understanding of that history, they might have even had some sort of concept that, that those pharaohs, those kings were some sort of deity here on this earth. And he might have even had some sort of belief to that effect that because of where he sat and because of all the power that he wielded in his mind, that he himself was some sort of, of deity. And so there's a lot of things that could have been going through his mind. But one of the things that we see is he has an ignorance of who the Lord is. And he does not view the Lord as someone that is to be submitted to, someone that is to be obeyed. We go over to the New Testament. In the book of Acts chapter 17, we see a different instance where uh, we have this idea or this ignorance of who the Lord is. The Bible says in Acts 17 and verse number 22, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the object of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim unto you. And so as Paul was passing through and observing their worship there in Athens, he saw something that was probably foreign to a lot of us. He saw a lot of idolatry, a lot of worship of, of false gods. And even to the extent that he comes to one place and there's this just-in-case altar. You know, we, we might think of that as the better safe-than-sorry concept or the uh, terminology that people use today, some fire insurance, just to make sure that we have all the bases covered, right? If we forgot any being out there that, that is worthy, that deserves to be worshipped, we'll cover that here with this unknown God altar, and we'll worship that, and that'll, that'll have us safe, and that'll have us covered and all of our bases. And he said, it's this God that I'm going to declare unto you. And so you think about that. He approaches them. He tries to find some common ground with them. He says, it looks to me like you're, you're spiritual people. That you're concerned with spiritual things. Things that go beyond this life. You know, there, but there's a problem. Of all of the things that you're worshiping, it's this, this unknown God. That, that's, that's the true God. That's the living God. That's the God that you need to know. And so he begins to teach and to preach of this unknown God. You know, we might take for granted in this country that we live in that people know who the Lord is. But more and more, I think we're going to find the cases that there's going to be more and more people that are unfamiliar with the Lord, that have been taught a lot of things other than, than the things that we know about the Lord and what we've come to know and been blessed to come to know. And so we have to realize that there are instances where it's a legitimate question when somebody might approach us and say, who is the Lord? Sure, it may be a, a position of arrogance and defiance and pride from some individuals. But in some cases, 
there will be a legitimacy to that question. And we need to be educated and informed and loving to teach, to take that opportunity like the Apostle Paul did and say, let me talk to you about this, this God, this Lord. The reality, I, I believe, for most is, is where we come to in Proverbs chapter 30 and verses 8 and 9. And it's one of the reasons that I think it's so important for us as brothers and sisters in Christ encouraging one another to think about this question this morning. In Proverbs 30 and verse number 8, he says, Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and still and profane the name of my God. And here we see... In the wisdom of Solomon, he prays for blessings of sufficiency. The idea of enough. Just give me enough. Don't give me too much. Don't let me be in that position where there's not enough. And he says, because if there's that position of of being in poverty, then then I may have to steal and and do something that that would dishonor you. But if I'm in this position of great wealth, then I would become full and he says, I would deny you. So sometimes this question of who is the Lord is, is put out there in a sense of denial. It's not there because of lack of knowledge, lack of familiarity. It's a conclusion that people come to because they become self-sufficient. And they view themselves likely, as Pharaoh did, as not having need of some other being to provide for them. And they might come to this conclusion where they, where they flippantly ask this question, who is the Lord? Or maybe came to the, the idea or the understanding that they didn't need the Lord. This idea is addressed in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 21. It says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, neither were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened. So notice in this context of Romans chapter 1, we're talking about individuals that knew who God was. It says they knew God. But they didn't glorify Him as God. And they weren't thankful. They didn't lift Him up. They didn't praise Him. They didn't exalt Him. They didn't recognize Him as we talked about this morning in every aspect of their life. And so their heart became dark and their thoughts became vain. And if you go down to verse number 28, it says, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And I want us to notice that that comes down to a matter of preference. It says they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. I do not like Brussels sprouts. And maybe everybody has different foods or, or things that they do not like, that they do not prefer. Uh, generally, I, I find when I tell people I do not like Brussels sprouts, they tell me, well, you just haven't had them cooked the right way. <laughs> and maybe you've heard that same argument. I want to tell you, I don't care how they're cooked. I've had them cooked every way you can think of. I don't even like the way they smell when they're getting cooked. If you like him, God bless you. Now, if you, wanna, if you take that as a personal challenge, you say, I'm going to make him the best Brussels sprouts in the world. I can eat them. I, my mom proved that to me when I, was a, when I was a teenager, and I thought I was a little big for my britches. And I, I wasn't being polite, and she taught me some manners, and I had to eat a big, big old plate of Brussels sprouts. And I, it's probably one of the reasons I don't like them. But I can swallow them. I can do that. The point is, I just don't like to. It's not something that I prefer to do. It's not something that I want to do. And that's what he's talking about here with these people when it comes to to the knowledge of God. He says they didn't like to retain him in his knowledge. And that's where a big group of people fit to this very day. Because knowledge of God's inconvenient with the way that they want to live and the things that they want to do. So they don't want to retain God in their knowledge. It's simply a matter of preference. It's simply a matter of what they want to do 
and how they want to live. But understanding that temptation that is out there, that very real possibility for people to know God and yet come to the point of denying Him, rejecting Him, we also need to understand that that denial or rejection of God is the end goal of Satan and all of the enemies of God. Those who knowingly or unknowingly have aligned themselves uh, against God. In Job 1 verse number 10 it says, you have, not ma- have you not, this is Satan, accusing God? Have you not made a hedge around him, Job, around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And so that's the accusation accusation of Satan concerning Job to God. Satan says, if you take all his stuff away, that word curse means to renounce. It's not that he doesn't know who God is. We clearly see in the story of Job that Job recognizes God, doesn't he? And he depends on God and he praises God and he glorifies God as God on a regular basis, on a daily basis. But Satan says if you take away all his stuff, then he'll renounce you. And we find that to be a false claim, don't we? Because Satan is given permission and Job is stripped of all his stuff, if you will, and yet he doesn't renounce God. And so Satan comes back with his, with his next attack. In verse chapter 2, verse number 5, he says, But stretch your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you or renounce you to your face. And so after Satan had failed in that initial attempt, he tries again and again. But we see that this time he says if you take all his health away, if he's in pain, if he's suffering, then he'll renounce you. And we see also that that wasn't the case. But we can see and we can learn about our enemy and our adversary, the devil. One, that he doesn't quit. Two, that that's his goal, is for us to renounce God. For us to come to this point in our life, though we know God, that we stop glorifying Him as God, that we become unthankful, and that we ultimately get to that place where we say, who's the Lord, that I shall obey His voice. So, it's a very real possibility, it's a very real temptation, and we need to be uh, aware of that, and we don't need to be so arrogant that we don't see it as a possibility. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, and verse number 28, the Bible says, So Samuel said unto him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Also the strength of Israel, that's in capital letters, that's referring to God, will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. And so as the kingdom's being taken away from King Saul, and he's being informed of that by the prophet Samuel, he's taught something simple about God that is a base miscalculation that many have about God. And as we study about who the Lord is, as we remind ourselves this morning about who the Lord is, we have to start with this foundation that he is not a man. We have this tendency to make this fundamental error, this fundamental miscalculation. A lot of, a lot of scientists, they might look at terms of, and, and, and things that are happening today, and they might base the assumption that everything happens today, that it, the, the rate of change and the way that everything happens today is the way that it has always happened. And if that's the base assumption that they make, then they might be incorrect in some of their calculations and some of their figurings, right? If your base assumption about God is that he's a man or like a man, then it will, 
it'll render all of your conclusions about God incorrect because he's not a man. So we have to start there. We tend to look at things through that lens in terms of things that we know and things that we do understand. God is not a man. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse number 15, he says, For thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. One of the first things that we, we notice when we talk about God, it says he's high and lofty and he inhabits eternity. What does that mean? He inhabits eternity. We talk about this term eternity, the concept of infinity, the concept of time without beginning or end or an indefinite timeline. You see, everything that we do is is related to and affected by time, isn't it? I I remember it's been about, it's coming up on 14 years ago uh, that my twins were born. And I remember being in that room where they were delivered, where they came into this world, and I remember that there was one person's job of all of those people and all those, the things that were going on in that room. There was one person's job when, when that doctor delivered the first one of them. They, they called out a specific time. And that was repeated. And it was checked and double checked. And that was what was recorded. And that was the official time of birth, right? And since that minute, since that second, before that actually, every, every portion of their lives has been affected by time. They've been on the clock. They were growing, growing, they're going, and they're affected by time. You know, that same day, I found out that my, my dad's mother, my grandmother, had passed away. Someone had gone over to her house to tell her that the twins had been born. They found her gone from this life. You know what? Somebody went over there, and they did an examination, and they did, and they did the same thing. And they determined, and they, they wrote down an official time of death. And it's inescapable for us. We have, that, we have that dash. We have that dash that's the end. And we have that line that's the middle. And everything that we do is governed. It's bound by time. God inhabits eternity. Time is a measure of the rate of change. Remember when we read in James, there's no variableness. There's no shadow of turning with God. He's an unchanging God. He's not governed by time in the way that you and I are. Rather, He's the creator of time. And so... While it might be somewhat simple to wrap our minds around intellectually, sometimes it's hard for us in our calculations and our understanding of God to remember that He inhabits eternity, that He's not bound by time the way you and I are, and He's not a man. In Job chapter 42, verse number 1, it says, Then then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. And so Job understands this truth about God. He understands that God is almighty. And we might use that term, we might refer to God, and we might say God almighty sometimes. In fact, in the oldest re- uh, records that we have, in the oldest pieces of scripture, uh, that's kind of the, the title of God is the almighty, God almighty. And that's that uh, designation of who he is, that he's the one that's all-powerful. And Job understood that about God. Revelation chapter 19, verse number 6, the Bible says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. 
I believe that was referenced in our prayer this morning. That there's this chorus of heaven. There's this army in heaven. And, and Psalms talks about that host of heaven. And that word host, we would probably say army. It's, it's a military type term. And there's this massive host of heaven. And they're praising God. And they're praising Him as the almighty God. The all-powerful God. And that's the chorus of heaven. And so when we think about who the Lord is, we need to understand that there's no limit to His power. In Proverbs 26 and verse number 10, The great God who hath formed everything gives the fool his hire and the transgressor his wages. You know, it's important to understand that not only did God in all His power and all of His might create the world as we know it, create the things that we see around us, but He still provides for and takes care of that world. He gives the fool his wages. He gives the transgressor his wages. The fool his hire. He's still providing. And the New Testament talks about that. That, that, that same world, he uphold, it's uphold, upholden by His Word and the power of His Word. So all of that power. Psalms 148, verse number 5. A lot of our, a lot of our songs, we have that, let them praises give Jehovah. We have that song we're familiar with. That that comes from Psalm 148 and 5. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. He spoke words and they came into existence. Where there once was nothing, then there was something. And that's the word creation. And that's what it's talking about. If you read Psalms 148, you see a great deal of things listed there. The sun, the moon, the stars, the angels. Let them praise Jehovah, for He commanded. He spoke words, and they came into existence. And that's the power of the God of heaven. One of the most powerful men, uh, mere men, that's ever lived. Uh, we have record of, of a portion of his life in Daniel chapter 4, and verse number 34. And if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you know that uh, God revealed through a vision in Daniel chapter 2 of successive kingdoms that would rule the earth. And he did that through this great and terrible image. And it was this image of a figure that was, we would liken to a man or a soldier. And this figure had a head of gold. And in explaining this vision, God explained that Babylon was that golden kingdom. It was that kingdom that was at the top of all these other successive kingdoms that would come in time. And so we know from that that we would call it the world power. And therefore, we would call the king of Babylon, we would call him the most powerful man in the world, right? That's, that's basically how that would be referred to. So here's this, here's this conclusion, this, uh, this knowledge that God had written down for us from that perspective of the most powerful man in the world. It says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain His hand or say unto Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles restored to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down.
And that's the summary that we have from one of the most powerful men that's ever lived. He said he, he had this time in his life where he probably got very similar to, to what we read earlier of Pharaoh, didn't he? Where he got high and lifted up in his own pride and he thought he was something pretty special. And God humbled him. He put him down. And the key word of that passage is in that very last sentence. He's able. And Nebuchadnezzar learned that. He learned that God was able. We see that same word used of Abraham when it says in, in Romans chapter 4 that he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in the faith, giving glory to God, and he was fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to perform. You see, Abraham understood that God was able. And when we're talking about might and power, we're talking about the ability that God has. None of his purposes can be withheld from him. You know, I purposed from quite a while back to be here this morning. There's any number of things that could have kept that from happening. A flat tire, an accident on the highway, so on and so forth. Because my ability just doesn't go very far. It doesn't have anything to do with my purpose and my desire. It has to do with my ability. And that's where the limit is. And that's where the limit doesn't exist with God. There's no limit to his ability. When we talk about the Lord and not only his power and his might, we have to understand the knowledge that he has and the extent of his knowledge. And the scripture is very clear about that. In Isaiah chapter 46 and verse number 9, he says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end of the thing from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all of my pleasure. You know, God, in the book of Isaiah, through the prophet Isaiah, he issues a challenge to humanity. And he says, you find a being that's like me. You find a being that's like me in heaven above or in earth beneath. And he issues that challenge in in a rhetorical way. It can't be done. He says, I know the end of the thing from the beginning. And it's not just having that knowledge, but it's combined with that power that we just talked about. Because he can declare the end of the thing from the beginning and bring it to pass. And so he has knowledge of what's going to happen and he has ability. In Psalms 147, verse number 5, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite, infinite. It's impossible to quantify God's understanding. That's how vast that it is. Isaiah 40, verse number 28, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So again, we have that combination of ability. You know, even, even the strongest, the mightiest of men, at some point, they require rest, don't they? They need, to, they need to relax. They need to rest. They need to sleep. They need to eat. They need to regain their strength. Not God. He's not a man. He doesn't get weary. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't need a nap. And his understanding is unsearchable. In Romans 11, 33, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And his ways are past finding out. God's knowledge and his understanding are beyond you and I. I was reading a book uh, some time ago about Einstein and his 
formulation as he was building his theory of relativity and as he was trying to uh, come to some conclusions and trying to put that equation into use. And that's an equation that, according to my understanding, is something that is quite useful today. And as it, as it became finalized and they used those, those equations and theories to accomplish great things that are, that are all beyond me, I don't pretend to understand all of those things. But as he was formulating that, he had a, a miscalculation in there based on an assumption that he had. And the base assumption was of, of this universal constant idea, the idea of whether or not the universe had a, a certain beginning point or whether matter was eternal is what it came down to. And so he had a, a little bit of a miscalculation, misunderstanding. And what the book recounted, and I have no way of knowing the accuracy of all these things, but my understanding and what the book recounted was that he had the opportunity in his life to go and to view the expansion of the universe through the Hubble telescope. And he was able to document photographically from the location of various stars, how that those things were expanding, all of the conclusions and things that that pointed to. And he came to this conclusion that he wanted to know the thought of God. And that's the, the statement that's attributed to him, that's recorded him, that he wanted to know God's thought. So evidently at that, at that conclusion, at that level of understanding, he gave into this idea or this conclusion that there was a higher power, a, a God that was above him. And he said he wanted to know God's thought. But from what we know in the scripture, even the greatest of minds, and I don't know who that is, I don't know how, how close up there to the greatest mind that's ever been that Einstein was. I know I look at the kind of things that he thought about on a regular basis, and it's just Greek to me. I, 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 don't, I can't make heads or tails of any of that. But even some of the greatest minds, they can't comprehend the depth and the, uh, the, the, the vastness of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And that's what's uh, put there. That's what's presented to us in God's word. And that ought to be a reality that's constantly humbling to anyone who stops and thinks about who the Lord is. And when you stop to think about, when you read God's word, and you think about putting God's word, and not just being a hearer of God's word, but putting God's word into action, and you begin to think, I just don't see how that can work. That's a good time to pause and remember who the Lord is. And remember that his understanding, that his knowledge is past finding out. And to be humble and not arrogant. In Psalms 104 and verse number 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. Everything that God has done, everything that the Lord has done, has been done in wisdom. It's been done with understanding that's past finding out. It's been done with a depth and extent of wisdom that's completely beyond mere mortals. And yet humanity, even Christians, would have the audacity, the arrogance to question that, to doubt that. I'm talking about things as simple as the family, about marriage. God and all of his wisdom said this is what marriage is. And we have the arrogance, the audacity to question that as humanity. God tells us and teaches us in his word that before the foundation of the earth, the lamb was slain. He had a plan for the church. And yet humanity comes along and they, they say, well, God obviously didn't see this coming. And they think they have to restructure or reinvent something that God planned out and had the blueprints for before the foundation of the world. And all of his wisdom and all of his knowledge and all of his understanding. 
Everything that he's done, he's done in a wisdom that's beyond ours, that surpasses ours. Hebrews 4, verse number 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so when we talk about the knowledge of God, it's important that we make that personal this morning as well. Because we stand before God and he has a full knowledge of you and of me. He has a full knowledge of our hearts, of our thoughts, of our intentions. In First Chronicles 28, verse number 9, this is why David tells his son Solomon this. He says, as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. And so David admonishes Solomon. And he says, you need to seek the Lord because the Lord knows all the thoughts. He knows your heart. He knows everything about you. And we need to remember that to this day. That we stand before God and we're revealed, our hearts revealed before him. The psalmist said in Psalm 69 verse number 5, Oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. And so this morning, it's important that each of us understand that God knows the secret things of our hearts, our lives. And those things are revealed before him. So when we think about all his knowledge, remember that that has a very personal application for each and every one of us. <coughs> Pardon me. First Kings 8, verse number 27. We learn another characteristic attribute of the Lord, that he's all present. In 1 Kings 8, 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. And so Solomon, as he completed the building of the temple, and he's in prayer and dedication of that building to the Lord, he does that with an understanding that evidently got lost along the way to a lot of the children of Israel. And they forgot this simple truth that the founder, the builder, the designer of this temple and all of these things remembered when he dedicated it. He said, this building can't contain, you don't dwell inside of a little building that's on the earth. It can't hold you. You're too large for that. Solomon knew that. He understood that. (coughs) And a lot of times, again, we miscalculate in our understanding of God. He can't be contained. He doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Acts chapter 17, this time verse number 24, it says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he's Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in hopes that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And so when we talk about God and him being all-powerful and all-knowing and high and lifted up and all of the things that he is, there, there may be this tendency to have him distant and far off and out of touch in our minds. But we're also taught in the scripture that though he's high and lifted up, 
though he's a great God that can't be contained by a building that we might build here on this earth, though he's made the earth and everything that's in it, and he's providing for it, he's still a God that's near, and he's a God that can be found if you're looking for him, and he's a God that desires to be found. He desires for you to seek after him and to search after him, and gives you assurance that if you do that, that you can find him, that you can know him, that you can have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 11, verse number 6, he says, But without faith it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so not only is it important that we understand and and believe and are confident and convicted in the existence of God, we have to be confident and convicted in the character of God and his nature, that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so this great God that we've studied about this morning is one that desires to reward those who seek after him. And he's assured those who seek after him that they can find him. So this morning as we wrap our thoughts up and we conclude, when we think about who the Lord is, he's not a man. He's different. And so we have to adjust our thinking at times and we have to remind ourselves. And we need to know what the scripture teaches in order to share the Lord with others. We need to understand that he's all-powerful, that he's in control. And I was studying some recent statistics on anxiety and, and, and the rate at which that had increased during the pandemic and the, the people that, that were really just overwhelmed and overcome with anxiety and how that, that had recently skyrocketed in society. And for the church, for the children of God, we have that challenge, don't we? We have that temptation to become anxious to become troubled with cares. When that happens, I want us to remember this question and ask ourselves the question, do we forget who the Lord is? And do we forget who we are? Because we get anxious when we start thinking about all these things that we're not in control of. But we have to remember that the Lord is in control. That He's God. That He's in heaven. That He knows the end of the thing from the beginning. And that whatever might be happening in this world around us, it doesn't change any of those promises that God has made to us, nor His ability to perform those promises. And so when we get anxious, we need to remember who the Lord is. And we need to glorify Him as God. When we become lifted up in our fleshly minds, I would like for us to ask ourselves the question, who is the Lord? Because when we think about these simple teachings from God's word, there's no room for pride and arrogance in our lives and in our hearts. Because we don't know. But we serve a God. We know the things that he's revealed to us. We know we can have confidence in those things. And when we have confidence in God, that's proper confidence. When our confidence confidence originates from within that's arrogance and pride and so we need to understand the difference between faith and pride and arrogance where is the source of that confidence when we're afraid and that's a that's a temptation isn't it that's a challenge isn't it different times different circumstances in life things might be going on and we battle that fear Paul told Timothy that God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, but power and love and a sound mind. Do you know what? We have a choice to make. 
And we can choose fear. When we choose fear, do we forget who the Lord is? Do we forget the promises that he's made us? When he said simple things like, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Did we forget who the Lord is? Why are we afraid? When he's a rewarder, he says he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So when we get lazy, do we stop and we ask ourselves, did we forget who the Lord is? Because the Lord's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And where does that leave the rest? And so we have work to do, don't we? We have work to do. We have a purpose in this life that we were given by the Lord. This morning, did you forget who the Lord is? Do you know who the Lord is? Where do you stand before the Lord? And this morning, if you haven't entered into a relationship with the Lord through Jesus Christ and putting him on in baptism, we would encourage you to make that choice, to make that decision this morning. If you've done that and you've forgotten who the Lord is and been overcome with sin problems, with anxiety, with fear, with any of these things that we've talked about. Remember who the Lord is. And I'll leave you with this thought that we find in the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 2, and verse number 32. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, puts forth this rhetorical question. He says, can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? And I want you to think about that question for just a minute. And I want you to think about the history of weddings throughout humanity. I want you to think about everything you know about a wedding day and a celebration. And I want you to formulate a guess in your mind about how many times that a bride has shown up to her wedding and forgotten her wedding dress. Because that's the question. To show how ridiculous that is, that's the question that's put forth. To underscore this next statement that we have, that's the question that's put forth. He says, yet my people have forgotten me days without number." And that's sad. That's the sad part of the question. And so that's where it's easy. We can look at that passage of Scripture and we can go, shame on you, Israel. Or we can look at ourselves and our lives and our hearts and say, how many days have I gone through without giving God the glory? Without stopping to be thankful? How many times have I been overcome with anxiety, fear, with pride, with sin, and forgotten who the Lord is? And so the lesson yours this morning... God's revealed to us who He is. And He's not far off from each one of us. If you're not where you need to be with the Lord this morning, we invite you to make whatever changes you need to make, and we're here to serve one another in love. If we can be of any of assistance to you, let that be known by having a seat on one of these front pews while together we stand and sing.